Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wolverine 24-7 podcast, your audio source for all things Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Zach Shaw. Steve Lorenz here with me. And for those that are new or don't know, uh, we talk mostly Michigan football. We'll throw in some basketball or even some other sports if it, if it comes up uh, you know, once or twice a week during the summer. During football season, we have a nice twice-a-week rhythm the rest of the year. It kind of depends on how things go, but appreciate all the new listeners we've gotten. We appreciate all the good ratings we've gotten, the uh, nice feedback that we've gotten from this. We're trying to really make this a point of emphasis, so appreciate uh, the feedback that we've gotten along the way. You can listen to our podcast, uh, the Michigan Basketball Insider Podcast with Sam Webb and Tim McCormick, the Michigan Recruiting Insider Podcast with uh, Steve, Sam, Bryce, Josh, and and they have some guests in there as well, I assume. So it's um got a, got a, got three podcasts. Really can get your entire fix now. And of course, if the podcasts aren't enough, you can always read our content over at the MichiganInsider.com, Michigan.247Sports.com. So with that said, uh, this podcast we're gonna it's gonna be mostly questions. We got a lot of I post sometimes when I post for questions, we don't get it ton of feedback but sometimes we get more uh this was one of those days we got a lot of really interesting football questions and we can just we have a couple other topics too but we'll we'll frame them just as questions uh so let's start with all right let's start with one that i think will produce the shortest answer uh tom a woods brings up an interesting question but does michigan not pursuing jt daniels suggest that they feel supremely confident in dylan and joe and so steve i my short answer is I don't really know because uh, I don't know what the conversation was like between the two. They could have reached out to Daniels and he could have said no, but I'm guessing they feel my, or I'm sorry, I'm not guessing my hunch is that they feel confident that one of the two will emerge. They, they feel like both quarterbacks got the most out of the quarantine, uh, you know, all things considering no spring practices, but the way they attack the, the film meetings, the Zoom meetings with the offensive installs, uh, and then also training separately. They feel like this is going to be a really good versus good kind of battle entering fall camp, and they think this is going to produce good quarterback play. Now, Daniels, he's someone that could easily, you know, one, he's one good season away from being a first-round pick. I don't know enough about that. My guess is they is that they feel more confident than maybe some of the other teams that pursued. I know Washington reached out. Obviously he ended up committing to Georgia. Um, and so there are some other teams that are, they really don't know if they have the answer at quarterback beyond this year, or even in some cases this year, Steve, your thoughts on Daniels. maybe not heading to Georgia, but George, Daniels recruitment in general. And, and if there's anything to be read from Michigan, not necessarily pursuing that hard. Uh, I think the answer to the person's question, Tom, is that I do think they must feel confident in who they have on their roster because Daniels committed to USC back back in the day. Uh, I think Michigan finished a strong second in that recruitment. His, I think, his dad's from Michigan, right? Yeah, he has family there. I believe his dad may be a Michigan fan or maybe was a Michigan fan. And good connection with Harbaugh, if I remember correctly. Correct. So my sense, this is partially based off of his original recruitment and then partially based off of what we were told after he decided to transfer from USC. I kind of get the sense if Michigan had really made a strong push, I, th- I kind of think that's where he would have went. Where he would have went. Uh, can't guarantee that, obviously. But... I kind of get the sense that, yeah, if Michigan had really made a, an effort here, I think that they might have gotten him. Uh, he had a Steve, real fit. Yeah. Real quick, what do you think the ramifications of that would have been? Because I, I think one, one reason why maybe they didn't, and I'm just speculating here, but it's not just McCaffrey and Milton, because I assume if Daniels comes, one or both of them transfer. I think it'd be a similar thing like what Ohio State had with Justin Fields, but worse because – there isn't top 100 recruits coming necessarily. Like, I almost wonder if, like, you know, does, does Valari take a look elsewhere? Does McNamara take a look elsewhere? Does McCarthy take a look? I mean, what do you think the ramifications would have been if they had heavily pursued? Because that is, whether it's how Michigan feels or not, it's going to be perceived as kind of a, 
we're still looking for our answer at quarterback type of decision. So like with quarterback, especially because you're seeing more and more guys and, and more and more high level guys transfer. I mean, my thing is if you're Michigan, if you're Georgia, if you're whoever, if you think you can improve at the spot, I think I you agree. take that opportunity regardless. Like that's the thing, man. Like, you know, if a guy was to leave and we know that they feel pretty good and, and obviously given the uh, product of what happened with Daniels, not at Michigan, we know they feel good about McCaffrey feel good about Milton that if one of those guys decides to leave, if they don't win the race, like they're probably going to get a legit opportunity to play very quickly somewhere else. We know now you don't have to play at one of the big time programs to become a legitimate draft pick mm-hmm. in the NFL too. So it's it's not as if uh, it's the end of the road uh, for any of these guys who decide to leave their school. Daniels, I mean, great example, right? I mean, I kind of think Keaton Slovis is. I think he, I don't know if I don't know. Our USC people would know a lot more, but you know, I would not have written Daniels off to be able to win that job back. But there's a sense in LA that Slovis pretty much saved Clay Helton's job, and that that's why they're going to keep rolling with him. Uh, just be, you know what I mean, though, like how he yeah, kind of came in and sense. played played lights out. And there's an affinity there between staff and player, but I, you know, and with the recruiting stuff, I'd be really, there'd have to be some negative recruiting or something. Think about it this way. Uh, I think Daniels had three, three years of eligibility left. I want to say if he needed it, but I think he's a little bit older. So he could have left after two years if he's immediately eligible. Say Milton was technically he could have left after one year. Even. Okay. Well, even then, so that yeah. illustrates the point even further. I don't know if he would have, if he wasn't eligible, but Cor- it, it, it was a possibility. Right. So, you know, say Milton wins the job. I mean, he's got three years left. And if he wins the job this year, you got to think his chances of finishing out as the starter are pretty, are pretty strong. Right. So, you know, with McCarthy, that type of deal, I can't imagine it would have changed anything there because I don't really think it changes McCarthy's timeline or, or That's trajectory. Yeah. Well, but I think with some of the other guys, you know, with, a, I don't know, with a McNamara, could it, I don't know, maybe I, I would never say never in a situation like that. But as far as the actual recruits or Valari who just signed or just arrived on campus, like I can't see it affecting those guys uh, specifically, but you know, no, I, to, to the original question, though, you have to believe that that's the case. They think whoever comes out on top in that race is going to give them – like they feel good enough to not have, you know, maybe rolled the dice a little bit with a, with a JT Daniels, as talented as, as he is. Right, right. Well, and yeah, I mean, you know, we haven't seen enough from McCaffrey Milton to say definitively one way or another, but I, I – I do know, you know, when Gaddis met with reporters uh, and the overall sense inside Schembechler Hall is it's confident that, you know, both of these guys have pretty high ceilings. They both have they both bring enough to the table that's interesting and different um, that can really fit what Gaddis is trying to do with an offense. So let's stick with the quarterback for a little bit. Brian Hall asked an interesting question. He says, if there is subpar or below average QB play this season, who takes the heat? Now, to me, I've said this before. This is year six of Harbaugh. Harbaugh, you know, I just, I just, um, there'll be a story about this in, in the next couple of days, but I just listened to a really good interview that he did with Jed Hughes, uh, former Michigan assistant, now a consultant, I believe, for Corn Ferry. And he talked for over an hour and he talked about what he saw out of Josh Johnson, you know, his, his quarterback, San Diego, who is still in the NFL. Uh, you know, he's talked about Andrew Luck a former three-star recruit, uh, you know, looking at Northwestern. He ends up going to Stanford, becomes the number one pick. And then he talked about Colin Kaepernick, who was a backup quarterback who ended up leading the San Francisco 49ers to the Super Bowl. And it's just interesting that it, it, there hasn't been a breakthrough like that at Michigan. And so, you know, first couple years, of course, you know, Brady Hoke, uh, you know, his quarterback recruiting – it was it was off and on, I think, and I don't think he ever quite got the guy. That's why he doesn't have the job anymore. And then you factor in, you know, Peters uh, ended up having a concussion, transferring to Illinois. But I I think year six, it's it's very hard to say 
that doesn't fall on the coach. So as far as who takes the heat, is it Ben McDaniels, the quarterback's coach? I don't, I don't really pin that on him necessarily. Is it Josh Gaddis? I don't think so. I think his, his work is very schematic. His work is, I mean, you know, he's a receivers coach by trade. I think it falls on Jim Harbaugh and I don't think it falls on the players. Um, I, I understand this is a different kind of year where players are going to have to kind of dictate their work ethic a little bit more than usual. I think this falls on Jim Harbaugh. I mean, he recruited both of these players. He, they've both been in the program for more than two years. As far as who takes the heat, if, if it's, you know, as, as Brian suggests, below average quarterback playing, we're not saying that's going to happen, but in this hypothetical, I think it squarely falls on Jim Harbaugh. And I think you have to wonder what, what changed. Because for a long time, you know, I, I always laugh at the phrases like guru and whisperer, but he was very good at coaching quarterbacks and getting the most out of quarterbacks. And I think he's done that at Michigan too. I mean, Jake Rudock, hard to, hard to not say he didn't get the most out of Jake Rudock. And, you know, Wilton Spate and Shea Patterson, I think it's one of those weird things where it kind of depends on what kind of football viewer or football fan you are. Uh, your view on him because Shea Patterson put up really good numbers. His efficiency numbers were above average, but it clearly wasn't enough to get Michigan to where the expectations were. And I think the same could be said for Wilton Spate. And so to me, I think it falls on Harbaugh if there is below average QB play this year, just because it's it's his guys. There isn't, it isn't, oh, you know, they got pushed into the to the fire a little too early. I mean, these are these are players who are who should be ready to produce. And so to me, I think it falls on Harbaugh. Steve, your thoughts? A hundred percent agree. 1000% agree. I think even more so when you think that McCaffrey was definitely Michigan's number one target mm-hmm. in 2017. And I'd argue Milton was, geez, I mean, right there. You know, they had Dorian. I, 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 there's the, the story when they hosted both Dorian Thompson Robinson, who's now at UCLA, and Milton on mm-hmm. the same weekend. That that's that those guys having those guys on campus side by side is actually was one of the things that really pushed them towards Milton. Uh, and Thompson Robinson's, mm-hmm. I, I think, entering his second year as a starter at UCLA. I know he started last year. I don't remember. If yeah, he played, he's, he played a little. Didn't he play a little bit as a true freshman too? He did. He did because Spate Spate got injured. That's right. Um, yep. I and then he I started am. to put up some some solid numbers last year. Good I player. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to his story is very interesting. I mean, he didn't even start at Bishop Gorman till his last year because he was behind Tate Martell. I mean, he really uh, last year was his really his second full year as a starting quarterback ever. So so anyway. he threw for oh real yeah. quick no no, no go know, ahead. Yeah. In 11 games, he threw for 2,700 yards, 21 touchdowns, 12 picks. Um, he also added about 200 rushing yards. So about 3,000 yards in 11 games. So good, but obviously UCLA, uh, UCLA off the top of my head, I don't, yeah, I don't know yeah. the record, but it's clearly they're not thriving. Uh, right. And so that is interesting about the, the side-by-side. I mean, well, that's when know, it changed. I know Pep Hamilton – loved Milton yes. in a lot of ways. Well, and, they all did though. I mean, I right. think I've said this a few times. The reaction for them getting a commitment from Milton was right up there with some of them. It's the most excited I remember sources staff being that I can remember uh, since I've been doing this. Not maybe not number 1, but definitely way up the list. I mean, they were elated because mm-hmm. they know what I think you know, the, the sense was that they know that what he's capable of, but again, yeah, the question is the warmups and watch yeah. him throw. The, well, but the, just the question has been, can you get there? I mean, and that's, that's a fair question. And so, you know, the tan or the stuff you can't teach is clearly there. And like, I think that's going to be the conversation we have until we know who wins the job The you know, with Milton, the, he can do things that not many guys can do throwing the football, but, it's about refining it and and playing mistake free football. So, um, so yeah, no. But as far as the original question, one thousand percent Harbaugh has to be. I mean, yeah, like you said, we're in year six now, and these are two guys. Like I, I would argue, were McCaffrey was definitely their number one target in seventeen, and Milton was way way up there in eighteen. I mean, it's not as if they had to go really barely. They barely had to go down their recruiting board 
in 18 to get Milton and they didn't have to go down their recruiting board in 17 at all. So it's not just that they're getting talented guys. They're getting the guys that Harbaugh wanted. So, mm-hmm. you know, and if you can't, you're, you're not supposed to, that that's what you're supposed to do. That's how you're supposed to win. You're, you know, and with a guy who's had uh, the track record he has at the quarterback position, you got to think, I mean, man, you got, these are the guys you wanted. You got to think they got to turn into something. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I don't want to state too much because this is a hypothetical. But yeah, if you if you go through six years as head coach at a school like Michigan and you still don't have your answer at quarterback, at what point does it fall on you? And and again, it's hypothetical. Maybe it doesn't happen. But PJ Fleck, think about him at Minnesota. He has his quarterback in year what three, four. You know, Penn State they had they had their guy within a couple years of James Franklin's tenure. And so there's been, you know, it's every school is a little different. Every situation is a little different, but I, I do think it's, I think it falls squarely on Harbaugh if, if there isn't strong quarterback play. Now is, are either of these guys going to be Justin Fields? I don't know. I mean, from a recruiting standpoint, Fields is, is, has proven to be a generational talent. You know, Tanner Morgan obviously has has some great receivers. I mean, there's lots of things that go into it, but I do think if you're six years in and you don't have your capital A answer at quarterback, that falls on the head coach, especially someone who we talked about it a couple weeks ago, Michigan's last first round draft pick. I mean, he's he's a quarterback guy. He quarterbacked in the NFL for 16 years. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. A similar question, if we can keep it in the same vein, James Crudup has a I think this is interesting. Where would you rank Michigan on a list of the toughest head coaching jobs in the country? So as we're, as we're saying the heat would fall on Harbaugh here, this is, this is interesting because I think, does it, does it maybe get understated how Michigan coaching job, obviously it's a very coveted job, but there are some difficulties that come with it. They have, they have the droughts, right? The, the one in 15, one in 16 against Ohio State. No Big Ten title since 2004. No top five finish since 1999. They have the geographic disadvantage. Uh, I think I just saw last year they were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15th in NFL players hailing from the state of Michigan. So not, not, a, not a drought of talent in the state of Michigan, but, but certainly not the same as a Georgia or an Ohio or an Alabama, Florida, California and so on. And, and then you also have to face Ohio state and Penn state every single year. And that's not to say Michigan, you know, they don't have to face Michigan every single year, but it's, it's a very tough division. So, I mean, there are tougher jobs. I think a Purdue would be a tougher job. A Rutgers would be a tougher job, but in terms of the blue bloods, Steve, do you have a sense for, I mean, is this on the tougher end of maybe that those top 20 programs or do you think because of there, there have been upgraded facilities, it, there is a lot of tradition here uh, in Ann Arbor and at Michigan, do you think this is maybe a job that someone can walk into and, and have at least some success? I guess, how do, you, how do you view this job? I definitely think it's one of the toughest coaching jobs in the country. Uh, the pressure to win. It's weird because I almost think Harbaugh's initial success has actually only increased Mm-hmm. The pressure, despite the fact that he's, I would argue, successfully at least put them back on the right trajectory. They haven't reached where I think people thought they would at this point, but they don't stink. We'll go back to the end of the Hoke era, go back through the whole Rich Rod era. It's like people, you know, you get these people that complain about where the program's at. And like, like I said, I know they haven't accomplished some of the goals I think that even you and I probably would have thought they'd have accomplished by now after five years, but you only have to go back five years and think about where things were then and see where things are at now uh, to understand that, you know, they're at least on the right trajectory. If not, maybe that's maybe even not a strong enough word to say how positive it is right now, but you know, your rival is on a, a streak of success. That's unparalleled in the history of the big 10 conference right now. You know, they were, you know, you look back now, they were basically a snowball rolling down the hill, you know, before Harbaugh got hired. 
you know, going, we've talked about this with recruiting and stuff, but going all the way back to Trestle, you know, the machine that Ohio state has right now is something that was conceived back in like 2000, 2001 makes it hard for any head coach to really stop the momentum that they really had, you know, from Trestle right. to, to Meyer and now today. So, but that being said, it doesn't lower the pressure for Michigan to, you know, that's, and that's priority number one. We got to be honest. I mean, it's, it's beating your rival and it, you know, until the last 17 years, it was, you know, one of the most, you know, it was a good rivalry at that point. You know, I think what Cooper was two and 10, whatever, uh, you know, Michigan obviously had a high amount of success and that's gone away. And so, you know, I think it's, it's weird because still one of the, I think the largest alumni base in the country. So it's, it's, there may be a bigger Michigan fan base than any in the country. Maybe. I don't know if it is. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's, it's way, way up there. It's a program that's used to having success that hasn't had the level of success that they've norm that a lot of their alums or a lot of the people that are there on Saturdays have seen in the past or are used to. And then, like I said, you can't conquer your major rival. I think it's made it, I think it's made it, you know, one of the tougher jobs in the country. I, I, I guess there are a lot of parallels between Michigan and Texas. Yes, that's a great example. Right. And so because like Oklahoma, it's the same deal where it's like you could hire a guy like Tom Herman, who may be the hot name and 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 can probably is a very, very, very good coach. But Oklahoma has won at such a high level for such a sustained period of time that it's hard for a guy to walk in and just flip the script in a situation like that. It's not that easy, regardless of how well good of a coach you are. Because the biggest thing we know in college football now is talent accumulation is as important as your the head coach the head coach that you have if not more important you know that we see it every single year that the same four or five programs are at the top of the recruiting list the same four or five programs are the ones in the playoff that's been the way kind of the that's what college football has been for the last six seven years at this point or since the playoff era started so you know, I think Michigan's way up there I don't know you know where exactly I don't know but I do put them in a similar light to Texas and as far as the foundation is always going to be there for them to compete. It's just a matter of, I don't, it's weird. Almost like, uh, I don't patience <laughs> or for your, or for your primary rival to trip up a little bit. Right. I mean, that's like kind right. of like what we said right. with Ohio state where it's like, not only do they keep winning, but it always seems like they get like sort of a big break when they need it, i.e. the Justin Fields situation where they <laughs> desperately needed a quarterback and the literal number one recruit, according to 24-7, randomly decides to leave Georgia after his first year and just falls right into their lap. I mean, if you're a Michigan fan, you've kind of seen this. It feels like it's like, oh, here we go again. What's going to, you know, what's going to happen next? Or that uh, Trestle steps, Trestle's forced to step down. He got one year of Luke Fickle. And then all of a sudden, here comes Urban Meyer, you know, one of the most storied coaches in college football history, you know, in Columbus a year later. So, you know, it's it's a combination of kind of keeping at it and wondering if, you know, like Ohio State in this in this instance will trip up or something like, you know, they'll make some kind of mistake program wise that'll give Michigan the open door to kind of do it. So, you know, and that, and that creates a jaded fan base who wants more than what they've been given. And I, so that's one of the biggest reasons I think it's one of the toughest jobs in the country, because I just think the pressure is as immense at Michigan as it is almost any other program right now. Yeah. I, I came up with, while you, while you were bringing up some good points, I came up with four schools that kind of stood out to me as like, if you're in, and by this, by the schools, I'm, I'm not counting like a like a UVA. Obviously, that's a tough job. There's not a lot of tradition. There's not a lot of history. But in terms of the schools that do have history, that do have kind of that annually recruit decently well, there is a foundation in place. And so the four that I came up with, uh, Texas is one. You bring up a good point. I, I think there's a lot of fan uh, frustration there, even though they've had a little bit of success in the past decade. I think there's a lot of fan frustration. I think Oklahoma uh, quietly just cleaning up in Texas when they need to. 
because they're actually closer to Dallas than Austin is. And they've built a really nice Dallas pipeline. Uh, and, and then Texas, obviously, there's been different situations. They haven't had the teams that I think fans were expecting for a few years. Tennessee is another one. Yep, I think fans are, are frustrated. Uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of fear that, you know, if, if Pruitt doesn't work out, well, suddenly is Tennessee not a blue blood anymore? And I think you could argue maybe they're not one right now. You could have that debate all day. Plus, uh, anyone who has ever been caught in Tennessee fans' mentions understands it's a, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty rabid fan base. And, and in some ways, that's great. But in some ways, that can be uh, difficult for, for a new coach or a new coaching staff to put together. Uh, Nebraska is an obvious one both from an in-state recruiting standpoint, there's just not a lot, not as much talent in the, in the great plains as there used to be. And then you also are facing what two decades now of kind of uphill battles. And so I, I, you know, Scott Frost hasn't been off to the best start, but at the same time, is there a coach who could have turned that team into something better? I don't know. I don't know. And so it's, it's definitely a tough job. And then I, I also threw Miami in there, Miami, they can kind of back into top, 10 recruiting classes when, when, you know, they have the right coach in place. But I think it's, a, it's in a similar boat as Tennessee where it's kind of like in Nebraska where there's a lot of worry about, is this program even relevant anymore? Is this, is this still working? Uh, there's a lot of pressure, you know, for the, there are distractions as well. And so they're all, I mean, they still produce NFL draft picks. They still produce, uh, you know, top tier players in the NFL but they've really struggled. And so I think that would be another job plus in-state recruiting. If Florida or Florida state are on suddenly you're, you know, you have to fight with them for every single recruit. So those are four, what I would call big time jobs that I think could be tougher, but I agree with you, Steve. I think it's on the tougher end in terms of jobs in the country geographically. uh, You know, think about who's in your division. Think about who you have to face every year. It's tough. And, and, you know, we're not, we're not uh, defending anybody, but, you know, the trophy case is empty at Michigan through five years. And so it is tricky. Uh, let's do, let's do this one. Brian Kress asked, of the defensive ends you mentioned on the defensive depth chart episode, do you see any of them making a full transition to tackle? Also, do you see... And this one's maybe more for you. Uh, Quentin Somerville becoming an Uche-type rusher, potentially a Brandon Graham three-point stance rusher. So let's start with the first thing. Of the defensive ends on the depth chart, who could transition to tackle? I think... I feel like Newberg and, and Welshoff both have the frames for it. We'll talk about Welshoff in a moment. Um, yeah, I guess I'm curious. I don't, I don't know enough about Sean Newell's philosophy just yet on what he views as you know, how he views someone who could move in to become a tackle. Uh, certainly, you want someone with the frame to, you know, get up to 290, 300 pounds and still be able to move with it. Uh, Steve, anyone stand out to you as someone who might move to tackle? I'm not sure if they were mentioned in your depth chart just because I'm not sure they'll crack the two deep or, you know, might be another year away. But and we're going back to talking about, uh, as Mike Morris, I think, is another guy that's a possibility mm-hmm. to slide inside. Okay. So um, we'll have to see. I think that'd be one, that'd be a question we'll get an answer to pretty quickly in fall camp, obviously. But I right, agree with right. I agree with both your other ones. I think Newberg, uh, Welshoff especially, yes, probably a guy I think that you know has has grown and and is a guy that can play inside. And then Somerville, any thoughts on which way he goes? Slightly surprised to hear Uche mentioned. Uh, you know, after he committed, that's I believe that's uh, Blair Angulo. He talked to Blair Angulo, uh, our Mountain Region analyst, about Michigan's plans for him. And Uche was mentioned. I got to say, Uche's kind of become the new Jabril Peppers, at least in the last like four or five months, as far as it feels like every other guy that they're really after, they right. keep <laughs> saying is could be like Uche for them, which. You know, to be honest, Uche is basically just code word for get to the quarterback as quickly as you can. So, you know, sure. they could use they can do that in a variety of ways. So not a bad guy to pitch, you know, and that's what every program does the same thing in that regard. So not really a I don't think it's a facetious 
angle for Michigan to take or anything. I, I like the mention of Brandon Graham because I, I think there's some similarities there, to be honest with you. And we talked about it in the recruiting podcast on Sunday. With Somerville, the thing I really, really liked was his ability to use his hands. And that was something that Brandon Graham was really, really good at. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, as Graham bulked up a little bit more, he was perfect in that three-tech spot. And they could even slide him into tackle in certain, not normal situations, but just, you know, pass rush type situations. I could see Somerville being that kind of guy. You know, it really, it's kind of one of those things that's going to depend on how his body changes uh, from now until the time he enrolls or even maybe after that, you know, and and what Michigan decides to do with him. To me, he looks like a guy that could build up a little bit more. You know, he doesn't strike me as that long-armed, you know, speed rush only kind of guy and that's where I think uh Brian great that's a really good I think that's a great comparison because like I said the biggest thing stood out to me of the Somerville he's look his technique looks pretty advanced for a kid playing the defensive line I look at him and that's another thing I mentioned on the other podcast but for people that didn't really uh, maybe didn't listen to it or whatever I compared Somerville this cycle to Jalen Harrell last cycle because Somerville opened up our rankings as the he was the fifth ranked player in the country and I think what's what he's gone pretty far down since then. we have him as a 90 I mean he's still a top 150 in the composite but our guys have him pretty low compared to the composite to me he was originally ranked as a strong side defensive end and I think he measured a little bit shorter than what we originally had him listed as well with Harold what I think is what I think happens is these guys are pigeonholed and projected to a, to a certain position. And if if their measurables don't add up to like your prototypical guy at that position, then things change. Like with Harrell, he got taller and like uh, a little bit bigger. So when he was rated as a linebacker, well, he got too heavy to be like a classic college linebacker. Right. Well, Michigan's not going to use him like that. So the fact that he was ranked as an outside linebacker is almost irrelevant, really. So with, with Somerville, I see something similar that knowing how Michigan wants to use him leads me to believe that I'm not saying don't pay attention to the ranking because I do think his testing numbers were a little underwhelming from what I remember or from what I know. But, you know, he's, he's, he fits into what Don Brown wants to do as a versatile guy up front. And, and so, yeah, I, I, think, I think he could be – I don't want to say both because yeah, those two different types of players – I just want to say, I, well, I just want to say, I do really, really like the Brandon Graham comparison, though, because I mean, if anyone remembers watching Brandon Graham, uh, he was excellent at using his hands to create space and make plays in the backfield and to get to the quarterback, and he still does. That's why he's been in the NFL for how long at this point? You know, right. winning, right. winning Super Bowls, making Super Bowl winning plays. I mean, so um, not that you know, no pressure on Somerville there, but uh, you know. That just I, I do like that comparison, though. Hmm. Okay, good to know. Uh, real quick, while we're on the defensive line, uh, Meta Wooten Peace says, who does Jel- Julius Welshoff back up? And I don't know who he does back up. We, I think that's one of those things that they, they, they probably want a couple weeks in fall camp to really decide. But I'll tell you what, Steve, when, I, when I've, I've looked at him at open practices, at warm-ups, at the bowl practices – I really think he could be a DT. I really think he's got the frame for it. I mean, he's already 6'6", 278. So he really only needs to add, what, 10, 12 pounds. And and I understand that you can't just snap your fingers and someone's 290 pounds. That's, it's a little, <laughs> a little more nuanced than that. But I think he's, he, he kind of reminds me of, of Aiden Hutchinson, actually, where they both, they both have these very wide frames that you look and you say, man, if they wanted to be, they could be a 290, 300 pound behemoth. And, and Welshoff, actually, I think almost more so than Hutchinson, has that kind of frame where he could add the weight. So, as far as should, as far as does, I don't know. As far as what I would do in my armchair defensive line coach stance, I, 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 would, I would take a look because, I mean, he's a little bit older. Uh, you know, he's, I think he's 23 already, actually. And so, you know, I, I don't think he's going to ever be this 254 pound, you know, Chase Young type, uh, burst off the edge kind of player. 
I think you really could just add some add some uh, concerted weight, you know, where it's where it's muscle, and and really just make him a, a defensive tackle. I maybe that's just me. I think he's got the room in his frame to to move up to that weight without sacrificing his athleticism. So I'd say, you know, throw him in that mix, especially he seems like you have a, a two deep and maybe even a three deep at, at defensive end. Do you feel the same way about your depth at defensive tackle? Especially maybe after this year when, when Kemp and potentially Donovan Jeter are gone, maybe you don't. And, and so I, I think he, if I were Sean Nua, I think I'd heavily consider moving him inside. Uh, Steve, do you have any insight to glean on, on what could happen or, or what you think should happen? Yeah, I, I agree. I like the Aiden Hutchinson comparison there, even though there was that video they just released of these guys and Hutchinson looks massive. Uh, so, you know, if, if Welshoff is even close to that, but I want to say he's got. I'll, I'll tell you what, I think he looks kind of similar where it's yeah, like he's, right. you know, there's, there's other six, six guys in the team, but he just looks bigger but he still doesn't look like he's necessarily filled out his frame yet. Sure. Even. It's just and, such a, it's, it's hard for me to, to describe, but you know, with the wide shoulders, with the longer limbs, I, I really think there's another 10. I don't want to say 20. That might be too much 10 to 15 pounds that you could put on Welshoff's frame. And the thing with him more so than we, because we've talked about Upshaw in a similar light, but even more with Welshoff is I think this was always going to be, two or three year plan right to really figure out what they had with him you know this is talking about a guy who was literally was still learning the game not the guys that play in the states are not learning the game still but I mean he had he was starting from square one almost uh when he got to campus so probably one of the like four or five players I'm most interested to learn about uh whenever fall camp actually starts uh to figure out just what the word is on him and, and how Michigan feels and, you know, what, what they think he can be because he's been kind of an intriguing enigmatic type guy since they took him. Obviously we haven't heard a lot on him, but again, not a guy we expected to hear a ton on year one, year two, as it pertains to right, right. like extensive playing time or anything. So I agree. I think inside is probably where I can see, you know, cause we look at the depth chart on the outside and things look, pretty solid there right I, I think yeah. I think inside is a spot that makes a lot of sense for him provided he has grown which again we assume that he has you know and again the other thing you got to remember we don't know what the you know Michigan with quarantine you know I'm assuming Michigan Michigan had basically individualized plans set up for each of these guys so was there we don't Welshoff's not a guy that we got the full intel I mean we've posted for anyone listening out there to check them out. I mean, we've posted Intel on probably what 20, 15, 20 players on the roster stuff we've been hearing over the summer. Welsh was not one of them. So we don't know if the coaching staff said, Hey, like eat a bunch of hamburgers you know, and keep getting bigger or anything. Or if it was like, you know, stay where you're at. Like, so that'd be the best way to start figuring and learn to figure it out. But you know, not a guy we had a ton on just one that I'm interested to learn about once they get back, once they're working. Right. Out. Well, and he's, I got to think he's also feeling a little at a crossroads because this is the year where he is going to start making that push to that too deep um, because Michigan, I mean, they're always going to recruit some players who are ready to go right away. Braden McGregor, Aiden Hutchinson, you know, there's always going to be some of those, but, but they also rely on veterans. You know, your Carlo Kemp, um, your Quiddy Pay, who waited until, I guess he, he kind of got a, little bit of taste of the starting job as a, as a sophomore, but really wasn't until a junior that he was, he was really highly involved. And so there's, there's a lot of veterans and they're counting on these veterans. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're Julius Welshoff, you know, where, where are you more likely to play this year or set yourself up to be in the two deep next year? It's probably inside. It's probably a defensive tackle. Uh, and, and who knows? I mean, Carlo Kemp did it right. I mean, he went from, outside linebackers recruit to defensive end. I, I know that part was the planned, but then, you know, he enters his what third or fourth year and he, or I guess his third year. And he says, Hey, can I play defensive tackle? And Michigan's like, Oh, okay. If, if you, if that's what you want to do. And then suddenly it works. And so, 
uh, yeah, if I, you know, thinking about from Julius Welshoff's point of view, he's probably looking a little bit at where he can play the soonest. So I, I guess we'll see. We won't claim to to necessarily know, but I I, I have a hunch he's going to move inside. I think he's got the frame for it. I think his skill set fits it, and I think ultimately him and Michigan, it's kind of a win win for both of them. He gets a faster path to playing time. Michigan feels like they have another player competing for some snaps at defensive tackle. Let's go on to uh, you want to do the off topic one, or you want to do the more on topic one. Which one was the off top? Uh, let's do off topic. Switch okay. it up a bit. So Black Engineer asked, if you had to choose one Michigan football player on the team to represent you in a classic elementary middle school field day, who are you picking and why? So, oh, there's got to be what, – what, what goes into a field day? I guess it depends. My, field, my school's field day, I grew up in Ann Arbor, so it was very unorthodox. It was like – they poked a bunch of holes in a bucket and you had to make sure the bucket didn't fall. And then the, what was the fireman's right. carry with, with all it, there were lots of games, more games than oh, necessarily okay. your track and field events. But Steve, your thoughts on, on who, who you might have represent you. That's when you, that's when you wish that Donovan people's Jones hadn't graduated. Cause he's <laughs> probably been my pick. Um, sure. Oh boy. Daxon Hill. I'll go with Daxon Hill. I think he probably yeah, top the gotta bottom. Gotta go with the five stars, don't you? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> five star for a reason. Him or Ambry Thomas, I think I'd probably go with, or maybe a Giles Jackson mix in there too. Uh, but I, I'll go with Hill as a guy, I think. Uh, and when he says classic elementary middle school field day, yeah, I'm assuming sprinting, jumping, the whole deal. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Hill. That's a fun question. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, who would – who would do the best in a decathlon for Michigan? And, and Dax Hill is a very good candidate. I mean, there aren't he's, – he's in like the 99.9th percentile in athleticism in the world. You know, the way he can, he can jump, he can run, uh, you know, everything he brings to the table, his, you know, the way he can tackle, as he showed last season. I'm going to go – I'm going to – assume there's some strength component involved because DJ Turner actually stood out to me, uh, you know, from his competitive standpoint and then also from his speed, but I'm going to go with Mike Barrett. I think, I think he's just, I mean, he already plays, he's already played like what, four different positions for Michigan. <laughs> you know, and he, he was a quarterback out of high school, uh, you know, was recruited as a running back. Jim Harbaugh compared to Anquan Bolden as a receiver and suddenly he's linebacker, special team savant slash backup return man. I just feel like he could pick up any any of these games, any of the, you know, it, he's probably losing to Daxon Hill in the sprint, right? But most other events, I feel like he could really hold his own in. So I'm going to go with with Mike Barrett. Was a middle school field day have like a bench press contest or something? I'm <laughs> uh, just trying to figure out <laughs> No, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just giving me a hard time. I'm trying to that. think. Well, I didn't. Yeah, my school like refused to do things the traditional way, so it was. Um, I'm trying to think like, what were some of the marquee events? Water, water balloon toss was one of them. So, could you win, or was it all just for? Uh, fun? I don't think we. I think you could win each individual event. They didn't have like medals at the end or anything. Oh, okay. Um, no blue ribbons. White ribbons, oh, you know what ribbons. was the big one though? And I I love this event. I think the Olympics should have it, and the country should just pick the best Olympians from a bunch of different sports. The tug of war. So every sure. class would have a tug of war team, and you would compete against everyone else in your grade. I'm t- I, hey, Mike Barrett could probably do pretty well in tug of war. All right, no, that's fair. Yeah, no, yeah. so that'd be <laughs> that'd be my choice. Um, anyway, back to, back to some of the football discussions. I believe this is our last one. So Scott Bell asks, how many snaps per game do you see Chris Evans getting? And what's the distribution of those snaps by area on the field? So we've talked about it. Evans, I guess not totally dissimilar to Mike Barrett, could play receiver, could play running back. Uh, we've talked, I think we've used the name Curtis Samuel before. And not to say he would be Curtis Samuel, but to suggest 
Is there a running back receiver hybrid position? Uh, we've mentioned Giles Jackson as another player who kind of could be in the backfield, could be in the slot, depending on the, the matchup, could be out, out wide. Steve, I'll let you go first. Your thoughts on, on Chris Evans' role, you know, what it might look like, and then if you have a, have a guest for snaps per game, what that might be. Oh, boy. The snaps per game, I think, is going to be a difficult one to answer right now. Thanks, to, thanks Scott, for the question, by the way. Hope Scott. That's Scott, great guy. Known Scott for a long time. Um, Waiting for the punchline on his question. No, I know. I know you wait. You wait. Uh, how does he tie it into uh, – does he ask three and nine questions or 94 questions? Right. Something like that. So, uh, distribution of snap. I, well, I could distribution-wise. So, I actually – I was curious about this after we had kind of discussed it. And I think we discussed it in the Offensive Depth Chart podcast, correct? Um, yes. Asked – on Curtis Samuel specifically, if Michigan thinks that that's how he would be used, I and I went into it thinking I might get a, a yes or a possibly. Doesn't sound like it though. Uh, it sounds like they still look at him. His skill set is primarily as a running back. You know, I, I think it. I don't know. I guess it didn't change much, is what I thought because I still think the screen game is where I think they're really going to maybe try to utilize him more. I. Still, though, I'll be honest with you, because this is what I mentioned last time. When he was recruited, when he was brought to campus, Michigan did literally did not know where they were going to play him. Hmm. They practiced him at, at defensive back, receiver, and running back. He stood out at running back. Still think he probably could have played receiver. With that in mind, I'm, I don't know, not skeptical of the answer I was given, but I do think, you know, depending on on – how quickly he reacclimates himself to the, you know, cause he's been out of the game for a while. Uh, you can train and practice all you want, but uh, game snaps are game snaps. Interested to see how quickly he reacclimates himself. Cause I, I kind of feel like if he is anything, looks anything like what he did before, you know, that Michigan's, I think he's a guy that you want to get the ball to occasionally, you know, I don't think he's going to be their number one back, but I also don't think he's a guy that's going to play sparingly. I guess I, I just, I feel like he, you know, so we've gone back and forth about the running back situation where I think you could legitimately say all four guys with Corum thrown in there have, like, distinctly different skill sets. Mm-hmm. You know, and so Evans, I don't know if he's a scenario-type guy. I, I feel like they'll get him – it'll be mostly back. That part I, I feel good about. That was good info. But just, you know, do they put him in slot at all? Yeah, is he a reverse guy? Is he a decoy in certain situations? That's kind of the question. Uh, but snaps per game, I don't know. It's just, it, it, you know, because we know how Michigan feels about Charbonnet. Haskins, I think, is going to play a lot. Like I mentioned, Haskins reminding me a lot of like a Chris Floyd or a B.J. Askew type guy for Michigan. Uh, you know, as a short yardage guy that can still scoot, and you know, if he gets a hole. But – you know, Evans, could could they, you know, and I don't know where recruiting comes into this, but, you know, does Evans play get maybe play ahead of Corum just because they want four years of Corum? I don't know. Because, you know, so like, like, you know, if they only take one back in 21, that's where it gets kind of complicated, I feel like. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll say he plays more than maybe people think he will play. And where he plays, it'll be primarily running back still, but I do think they'll mix, they'll try to mix it up a little bit just because he can. Sure. So I actually, you know, upon hearing a little bit of what you've heard, I actually do see running back as his primary position. So one thing to note, when he arrived on campus, he was like 195 pounds. He was five foot 11. That there's some positional versatility there. By the time he was a junior in 2018, he was listed at 216 pounds. So he, he bulked up, he shaped his body to be more of a true running back and and I do I mean he broke a lot of tackles like he wasn't like a specialty running back it was him and kick him and Karan Higdon they were both you know viewed as relatively tried and true running backs now Evans pretty good in the passing game I don't think Michigan is going to ignore that but I could see a scenario where it's I don't know maybe 85 to 90 percent of his snaps are are 
you know, with him lined up in the backfield. Now, if it's a screen pass, that's that's different. But they also don't want to they don't want to have a tell. They don't want oh Evans is in the game, therefore it's a passing play where the running back runs a route. You know, Josh Gaddis thinking about the. Uh, uh, Joe Moorhead, you know, one of his main influences, one of his philosophies is don't just have specialty guys come onto the field. The guys who are on the field should be able to do several different plays to keep the defense guessing. So, and he was a good running back too. I mean, let's, let's not overlook that, you know, he was some, I mean, he was, you know, entering, had he played last, had he been a part of the team last season, I think he would have entered the season people thinking, Oh, could he be a first or, or probably not a first, but maybe a second or third team, all big 10 running back. So I see it as far as snaps per game. You have a Charbonnet with, with Corum, another top target, uh, Haskins who clearly has just has some abilities that, um, you know, Michigan, Michigan did see, and they saw that, saw that early on, but, um, you know, he was playing linebacker, but clearly they like him at running back as well. I would go with maybe in the fifth, range for snaps per game I know someone replied and mentioned you know in the return game I don't I I think they've got some some true burners in the return game I don't know if he would necessarily be um, you know maybe their go-to return man or anything but it is very interesting Steve I mean just he he fits that that speed and space versatile running back role that I think Josh Gaddis really likes he fits that like a glove so I could I could see him vastly exceeding 15 but I do think you know without having I mean he hasn't he has not practiced football in 18 months it's as far as like a team pads on contact practice it's been a year and a half so I I don't want to set some unrealistic bar I'm I'm gonna say maybe around 15 snaps per game which is still a fourth of the snaps but I, th- I think Michigan, I could see them doing, you know, Alabama has been known to do some two backs looks before. I- I'm going to guess 15 snaps for now. All right. Uh, you know, I'm not going to give it concrete. I'm going to play the wishy-washy. I yeah, was right. Okay. I was right. I was right either way. Yeah. Comment. Yeah. So. I know how you do. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I don't mind. Anyway. Yeah, that way you're never wrong. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. A couple more quick ones. These ones can be quick. Uh, ESPN did some some interesting rankings. I, I, I like their approach where they do one from each top 25 team. Most exciting player, most unheralded player. Now, they picked Ronnie Bell for most unheralded player. I think it's Brad Hawkins because Ronnie Bell, he's... He probably doesn't get the acclaim he deserves for leading the team in yardage last season. But I think Brad Hawkins, I mean, Pro Football Focus had him as a first team all Big Ten player. And I think I think he's vastly underrated. Now, the more we talk about him, bring him up, the more or the less underrated he gets. But I went with Brad Hawkins and maybe Ronnie Bell second. And then most exciting player, they picked Nico Collins and Hard to argue that one makes a lot of sense. I'm actually going to stick with the safety position. I'm going to say it's Daxton Hill. I mean, as far as like, if I were to just, just watch, not even be a reporter, just watch, grab my popcorn. Who am I looking at the hardest on, on either side of the ball? I think it's Dax Hill just because I, I think he could go from bench player to all American. And I don't think anyone would be stunned. And so to me, he's as far as offensive player, it's pretty hard to argue Collins. Maybe you could say Zach Charbonnet. You could argue Chris Evans if you're, um, you know, if you think he's going to exceed that 15 snap count. But your thoughts on the most unheralded player, and then the most exciting player on Michigan's team? 
Bell was the right choice. Yes. I think your logic on Bell was perfect because I think within the Michigan market, I don't think Bell is unheralded, but nationally, absolutely. Right. He was their leading receiver last year. I don't think anybody would have – if you knew who was on the, the roster, you weren't a Michigan fan, he's not the guy you would guess. From an, from a market standpoint, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably got to be Hawkins uh, just because, I, yeah, he's had a bigger impact than people realize and literally never gets talked about. So, you know, again, I think the objective for Brad Hawkins this year is to become – rated sure right you know so I, I think that'll be the where uh where Hawkins you know because it could be a situation where he becomes so underrated that he's overrated uh or rated you know properly so and I always like that term because I think it's legit and then uh what was the other one uh, most exciting uh offensively I go with Giles Jackson because okay. I think of, of the sure. different of the different ways that he can hurt you offensively. Collins, the best player. Charbonnet, maybe the most important player. Hmm. But Jackson, I think the most exciting. And then defensively, I'll go with McGrone. Uh, I think. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Well, but I think Hill's a really good pick though too, because I I think, you know, it's funny. Uh, Barton Simmons are. Our, I don't even know what his title is anymore. Uh, our, one of our national guys reached out to me and asked that something if like if Michigan, he's I think he's doing some kind of piece. If Michigan is to have a successful season this year, blank will have had a big year. You know, at first I just said QB one because hmm. I'm like it's the natural answer is if the quarter if the, whoever wins a quarterback job has a big year. But then I, I said it's like if you want a real name. I actually went with Hill because I think he gives them a different dimension at safety that they haven't had under Harbaugh. Hell, I mean, they haven't had a dimension that he might offer at safety in years. Right. You know, and and I think that could be a really big difference maker for them defensively playing against those more athletic, the Penn States, the Ohio States. You know, uh, I think he gives them, if he's playing at an optimal level, can give them a better shot in, in some of those some of the scenarios that those teams provide offensively. So, yeah, I, I'll go with McGrone, though. I, I just think, you know, what was interesting, what's interesting about him last year is he got kind of thrown into the fire, which is something I think, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you agree. I think a lot of people on our board are harping on this, was that maybe Michigan should do that a little more often with some of these younger guys who are immensely talented instead of like almost like an, almost like they're too patient in certain situations, you know, cause McGrone came in, played really well, but also made a lot of mistakes. Right. I want to think I was Iowa, Wisconsin. I know everyone would struggle defensively against Wisconsin, right. But a, but a guy where it seemed like he was there on almost every play, but then you go back and watch the game and he also did make some, what you would say were, mistakes that inexperienced players make yeah it got caught up and stuff yeah. right you know and and so I think I think with this year I think it's going to be really exciting to see because I think he's gonna I think you're gonna see an elimination of a lot of those mistakes and I think you're just gonna see a really 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 good linebacker uh, his film to watch in high school was a blast I mean he was just destroying people you know and I think you might see a little bit more of that this year and and again always gonna be the Devin Bush comparisons with pretty much any great linebacker that plays at Michigan going forward. Never going to put that kind of expectation on anybody, but is that athletically, I mean, he came into Michigan with better testing numbers than Devin Bush did. Um, so hmm. he, at least athletically he's capable, but you know, that wasn't as, as athletic as Bush was. That wasn't the only thing that made him as great as he was. So, you know, there'll be that other stuff too, but that's one guy I'm really right. excited to see defensively. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> And and I mentioned Dax Hill could go from bench player to All American. McGrone, I don't think it would count the same. And I'm I'm certainly not uh, I'm not saying either player will become All American. But man, entering last year he was a bench player, and entering this year he could be. He's not gonna not gonna be close to Micah Parsons, but he could be. Could he be next in terms of Big Ten linebackers? I I kind of think so. 
and and you bring up a good point. consistency in addition to um you know avoiding mistakes but he is a natural leader he's highly athletic and i i think i think michigan defensive coaches are kind of saying okay got mcgrone now get everyone to practice like mcgrone practices and so it's it's going to be interesting uh, as far as exciting players go so in- interesting couple couple things that espn brought to the table uh, appreciate all the questions and be sure to check out uh, all of our other podcasts the recruiting podcast the the basketball podcast as well check out all of our stories over at the michiganinsider.com michigan.247sports.com for steve lorenz i'm zach shaw this has been the wolverine 24 7 podcast thank you so much for listening hope you had fun hope you learned something we'll see you next time